is the Equity Experience Podcast, a space created for every educator or school leader who is authentically pursuing equity and inclusion in their classrooms and schools. I'm your host, Dr. Carla Manning, and I welcome you. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of the Equity Experience Podcast. This is Dr. Carla Manning, and I'm excited to be here on today's show. For today's topic, we are going to talk all about disproportionality, okay? And for those of us who are engaged in this work of educational equity, certainly topics and conversations of disproportionality and disparities have come up. On our show today, we have a very special guest, Dr. Chris DePhillips, and he does a lot of work in his career around addressing disproportionality with teachers and school leaders. So we're going to have a really, really good episode. We have a lot of information to share with you. So if you are interested in this conversation of addressing disproportionality, resolving disproportionality, and looking for some solutions to help you resolve disproportionality, this podcast episode will definitely help in that direction. So thank you for joining us, Dr. Chris. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Equity Thank you, Dr. Manning. Appreciate you. Thank you very much. Absolutely, absolutely. Thanks for taking the time to be here. So Chris, we're going to go ahead and get started. Why don't you go ahead by just sharing your background with us and, you know, sort of your interest in this work of educational equity? You know, why do you do what you do? (laughs) Thanks. Sure. So actually, I started out my educational career as a custodian. I'm not going to take you through my whole career, but that is always sort of the uh, starting point for me. My uh, dad was a custodian and a mechanic. My uncle was a custodian. And that's how I started in this field. And it just really sort of grounded me in what the work is about because I got to sort of see some of the behind the scenes stuff before I knew what it was. I also recognized pretty early on that one of the reasons why I wanted to be a social studies teacher was because I was like, well, they're teaching history wrong. They're not telling, you know, the all the facts about what has really happened. And, you know, it's a very Eurocentric viewpoint and all that. And I think that's all true. But what I came to learn is that, for myself, at least, what I came to learn is that what was happening in my classroom wasn't just it. Like, when I was a a young, immature teacher, I thought it was just my own classroom. I was like, I can make all the changes here. And and I don't have to listen to anybody else or, or talk to anybody else. And I didn't really care about administration or like the larger educational conversation. But then I, as I matured in my profession and sort of understood what the larger implications were, that's when I became interested in expanding some of my own purview to, you know, administration and so on and so forth. While that was happening, I was also kind of going on my own journey as a white man of self-reflection understanding what it meant to be a white man in the United States and sort of deconstructing and unlearning a lot of things that I had learned about whiteness or that were sort of internalized within me. So as I sort of went through that process, I also was growing as an educator. And that's how I ended up trying to get into administration and all that because I sort of recognized that education was and is on the forefront of our larger societal questions and battles, uh, particularly when it comes to race and and equity and social justice. So after a teacher, I went on to be a building administrator, upstate New York. And then I went back to the uh, NYC Department of, of, of Education as an assistant superintendent and executive director, and finally working with Chancellor Dr. 
Misha Ross border and some of the equity initiatives that she was trying to do. So that's generally my story. I think my overall why as an educator, it's just probably important to put this out there, particularly as a white cis male educator, is either I'm showing up to disrupt and dismantle and all that, you know, that we talk about all the time and oppressive system, or I'm complicit in it. And there's really no fence sitting. So I have to be one or the other. And that's why sort of on a daily basis, that's what I do now. Clinical professor and program director NYU for the Ed Leadership Department or Ed Leadership Program. And uh, yeah, that's where I am. Excellent. Excellent. Chris, you know, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but we may have to do another podcast to kind of go deeper with some of the issues you just mentioned and raised around the personal identity work that you've done, the critical self-reflection, the understanding your own journey in terms of deconstructing whiteness, if that's okay with you. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about disproportionality because I know that in your work as a school leader, as a consultant, as an educator, as a researcher, as a scholar, that you do a lot of work and the work that you do with your colleagues around disproportionality. So, you know, let's just start there. And if you can give us your definition of what disproportionality means and what does it mean in the context of like school operation, decision-making within schools? Yeah. So first, before I say anything about this, I have to reference the great and one of my own mentors, Dr. Eddie Fergus. He is on the forefront of this. And anything I say is really sort of just coming from me pulling from knowledge and, and experiences that I've had around him and through talking to him. So sure, Dr. Fergus really is, is on the forefront of disproportionality and understanding, you know, the way, you know, root cause analysis works within districts and the way that it gets manifested and some of the best approaches to tackle it. So I would be inauthentic if I didn't <laughs> shout him out right away. Sure, <laughs> so sure, I'll sure. probably hear about it. So uh, <laughs> I have to shout him out. Absolutely. And, and actually give a lot of thanks to him for, you know, schooling me to a lot of this. So I think typically, you know, it shows up in a variety of ways, you know. So first give us the definition though, Chris. So, so disproportionality I know is just a math term, right? But the way educational disproportionality, particularly around race, but it could be other identifiers, is either the over or under representation of one particular group of students in an area within a school. So it's often seen through discipline, where there may be one particular group of students that's overrepresented in a number of discipline incidents that happen, or suspensions or referrals for suspension. It can be seen in special education. So those, I guess, are sometimes maybe seen as more negative indicators, but there are also over and under representations within access and opportunity to, you know, advanced coursework, AP classes, honors courses, those types of things. So that's generally the way disproportionality functions within a school and within a district. And I think typically it shows up in different ways. Like, you know, I'll often say, and I don't know if this is true, but it's true that racism pretty much lives within every school within every school district, within every school building, there are strong elements of of the way whiteness shows up and the way racism and bias show up. But I think it's manifested sometimes in different ways, or it can be more clearly seen in a variety of ways. So some schools that I worked with throughout my career, you would walk in and look at their data and right away, you're like, well, you know, you have an overrepresentation of Black male students being referred for suspensions. So I'll put a pause on that for right now, and I'll kind of just back up 
just a bit. When we're looking at disproportionality, we look at it through three different numerical factors, I guess, or sets of data. One is through risk index, which is basically just the rate or amount of risk that students of a particular racial or ethnic group have falling into a particular category. The next one is composition index. So basically, what's the composition of one particular group of students who are experiencing something within a school as compared to the larger body of students? The final one, and the one that I generally will lean into more, and as usually the data point that is most used to say, all right, well, you have a group of students who are experiencing this growth, is the relative risk ratio. Now, districts or buildings or a group of students within those districts or buildings should have a relative risk ratio of 1.0. That's all things being considered equal. If it's under 1.0, then there's an underrepresentation. If it's over 1.0, like let's say it's 2 or 2.5 or whatever it is, there's an overrepresentation and you would say that 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 group is is much more likely to experience or not more likely is experiencing this phenomenon within your school or district. For example, what the composition risk index is what it's called? Composition index. Yeah, that's just the makeup of one particular group who is experiencing a phenomenon within a school. Out of all the students in this district, 38% of white students are in advanced courses. And then it may say, you know, Black students are 75% less likely to be recommended to an honors chemistry class compared to their white peers or what have you. Right. And then that would be a relative risk ratio of probably 0.25. Okay. 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 So it's a lot of math involved. It's a lot of math. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. It's, it's yep. a lot of math. You know, it's all very formulaic though. That complicated to do the math. And once you kind of understand the polymers, which Dr. Fergus has in his book, you can run those numbers pretty easily. Sure. Sure. So to plug Dr. Eddie's book, the book that you're mentioning, the title of the book is Solving Disproportionality and Achieving Equity, A Leader's Guide to Using Data to Change Hearts and Minds. So giving Dr. Eddie some plug and shout out there. (laughs) Okay. So thank you for that. And this is a good introduction here, Chris, because, you know, oftentimes when we talk about educational equity, we have to talk about these disparities and we have to look at the data for what it is and for what the data is telling us. And so having these conversations around disproportionality helps us to have and to frame this larger conversation and context around like exactly what are the inequities in a school? And then what's the larger story behind these inequities? That's right. I've also had conversations with school leaders across the country and they'll tell me, well, you know, 80% of our students are doing great. And then the question is like, okay, well, what about those other 20% and what's happening? What do those 20% tell you about your district and what's happening within your district? There's, there's one district, I won't say the name, but uh, they're one of the top districts in their state. If you look at their their numbers on paper, we just do a quick glance. You're like, okay, this is the top performing school in this state. But then when you dive a little bit deeper, the racial disparities within those numbers are so stark. So there's two things that, that jump out to you right away. One is the racial disparities and disproportionality. The other is poverty manifest through, through poverty. Our students who are experiencing poverty or homelessness, those numbers are so stark. And when I pointed that out to this superintendent, there's a lot of, you know, stuttering and stammering, which I understand. And there was also, you know, this moment of like realization and, you know, sort of like a shock moment where the question then became like, okay, what do we do now? Like what's next? You know, should we have like some workshops around this? Should we do 
some PD for teachers? You know, like, why are these things happening? And that's where you really can get into a larger root cause analysis around, like, why are particular things happening within your district? And that isn't, I don't want to say never. You can't just look at the district across the street and say, well, that's their issue. So that might be our issue too. That's not always the case. The way things are manifested within your district are unique to you. They are contextually unique to your own school, to your own district, to your own classroom, even. Different things happen in in different spaces because of the community that's there, because of the history, because of the culture, because of all those different things that kind of are manifested within that particular space. They all contribute to the reason why students may be experiencing disproportionality. I mean, ultimately, I think particularly here in, in the United States, it all comes down to the way that, you know, whiteness has sort of been infused within the education system since the beginning of this country. But the way that that sort of comes about looks different depending on the, my colleagues make fun of me for is, is uh, contextual uniqueness, which I don't think is proper English at all, but contextual <laughs> 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 um, uniqueness is really what drives why disproportionality exists within a space. Chris, let me pause and kind of go in a different direction quickly, not to defer too much though. But for people who may wonder, like, why is race always a salient factor? Like, why do we always talk about race? Why is race always highlighted? And then even like the example that you just mentioned with the school district, you mentioned that race along with poverty slash socioeconomic status were the two salient factors. Why do we focus on race as like the almost always the most important topic to focus on? Why is race always a priority in these conversations? Yeah. This could be a whole... It's a whole nother podcast. You know, a whole nother podcast, a whole nother <laughs> book. This is a big topic. And any answer I give, I promise it's not going to do it justice. But race is such an integral part of the United States story. And just from its founding and the way that it was continually tied up with property rights and access and opportunity and all that, it's always there. So I, so I don't know if that's true in, in other countries, and I think it varies, but specifically to the United States... The story is race. As a former history teacher, everything that I taught about always came back. There was always like an element of race to it, whether I wanted to dive into it or not, whether that was in the curriculum or not, it was always there. And it continues to always be there. And I think James Baldwin talked about this as sort of the great American lie, but it's always there. It's so intertwined, stitched into the fabric of everything that sort of happens in this country. And in particular, education. One of the biggest rules, one of the biggest ways to sort of put down uprisings of enslaved peoples and abolition work and all that was to stop education, was to not allow enslaved people to read, or was to not allow for pamphlets to be distributed or things like that. And, you know, so forth. You know, we look at after the Civil War and the way schools functioned and all, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm not going to be able to give it a great answer in, in, a, in a short amount of time, but it is great. That's just it. When you work with schools, and you can even, you know, consider your work with Dr. Eddie when you answer this, but when you do work with schools in terms of helping schools to resolve disproportionality, so race continues to be one of the most prominent issues that comes up in terms of the specific areas that need to be resolved. Yep, it is particularly there. It's almost always a factor that comes up in disproportionality. When I worked in the Bronx, that was 96%, I think at the time, black and brown. It was the brownest borough, or it just continues to be the brownest borough in the uh, city. There was still so much disproportionality there, 
even with segregation as a factor. Typically, it always comes back down to race. And there are other lenses to look at it. You know, we looked at, when we talk about equity, we talk about sexual orientation, gender, religion, economic status. All those things are absolutely always contributing factors. Language Um, proficiency. Language proficiency. Thank you. Yep. Absolutely. 100%. All those are always there. But when you distill it, it'll come back down to race in somewhere. Wow. Wow. Powerful. If there's a superintendent who wants to be intentional about looking at disproportionality, you know, running some of these numbers, where do they start? Like, what are some of the initial conversations they may need to have if they want to start doing disproportionality work? They need to start with themselves first. Mm. This is inward work because if you're not doing sort of the self-reflection and personal growth work first, your tolerance for it and your fuel that's kind of pushing you, or maybe you're doing it because you have a board that is interested in this work or whatever your reason is, that's going to run out at some point. And you have to rely on your own personal wives for this, your own personal reasons. You know, I guess I'm, and I'm speaking as a white cis male. So I know if this was me having to do it, it's my own personal growth work that, that has to happen. So that's first, because you're going to get pushback. You're going to get people who are not interested in it. You're going to get, you know, community members who are questioning why you're doing it. That's sort of where it starts. Then you have to look at your own organizational capacity to handle this sort of stuff. Do you have to do some work first with your own leadership team or with the board where this sort of starts? And typically, I think that's probably it, unless you're really far advanced in your district's equity journey. I think you go from yourself to work with your own cabinet and the board of education, depending on your own you know, contextual politics and culture and history and that kind of thing. And then from there, I think it depends on where your data says are some of your disproportionality issues. I think it also depends on your community culture and your community history. You know, I think those decisions have to all be sort of parsed out. So I would recommend first doing a lot of data gathering and not just the uh, dispro data, because that's sort of the uh, first line. That's like the fire alarm telling you that we have a problem here and we need to do something about it. There's always a lot of stories that kind of live beneath that data. So you have to then, once you realize that this is the path you want to go down and you're committed to it and you have the support of your cabinet and your board, then I think you want to start doing some real deep data dives that are both quantitative and qualitative in nature. And almost, I would say almost more important to do that like qualitative dive work. And what I mean by that is conducting empathy interviews with community members, families, students, hearing from students. I had a good friend, Dr. Rydell Harrison, just told me this recently, but he said he calculated all the hours that students are in school from the time they're in kindergarten. There's that Malcolm Gladwell thing. And I think, you know, if you do something for like 10,000 hours and you're an expert at it, something like that. And basically he said that, you know, by the time students reach seventh grade, they're experts at being students because they have all those hours. So talking to them is really a great place to start to understand what student experience is all about and kind of hearing from them. You know, a lot of times we just discount them and say, well, they don't really know what they don't know, but their experience, you know, paramount in this, talking to teachers, similar idea, right? And then, you know, community members and that kind of thing. I think holding those focus groups, conducting empathy interviews, you know, we did this in the uh, DOE coming out of the pandemic. You know, we had all this federal funding 
And through work with Dr. Fergus and Dr. Ruby and Bobby Fernandez and a whole team of people and under the guidance of Dr. Porter, you know, we conducted empathy interviews throughout the city to see how folks were experiencing the pandemic and what they most needed and that kind of thing. That is really powerful data to gather. So anyway, I won't go too far off onto that, but that's the key. You have to tell the story behind the quantitative data that you have in order to really fully understand it. A lot of times I would go into a school with my own team doing this work and we would have all of our quantitative data and sometimes we would just be dramatic about it. We would go into the school, we'd bring this like binder of quantitative data with us and then we'd put it down on the desk in front of us and you know, we'd say something like, all right, I know what this says, you know what this says and we're going to push it to the side and we would literally like push it away and we would say something like, now you tell us the story behind it. Like where does this data live? Because that is where you can get down to why some of those disproportionality is being, being experienced by students. Sure, sure. So how does disproportionality show up? So what is it that needs to happen? Like you, I guess you're mentioning this already, the doing the focus groups, the interviews, but how can a school leader identify disproportionality? How does it reveal itself? If that makes sense. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. So Typically, when I was working with different leaders around the DOE and other places, we would look at three different areas. One is numerical goals. And this comes from Dr. Ferguson's work, too. One is, is a numerical area. And that's really like the quantitative work, right, that most folks are typically more comfortable with dealing with. Like you can say, all right, I have a relative risk ratio of 1.7, and I understand what that means. Okay, I can deal with that. The other area would be around social justice which is what he calls social justice, which really is around access and opportunity. Do students have access to particular areas or opportunities within a school building, within a school district? The third place that this kind of is manifested from and comes out in is in, you know, the culture and belief, the hearts and minds work of the adults in the building. And that typically is where a lot of districts have to start, but also can be some of the more challenging work (laughs) because You know, a lot of districts will want to just do one workshop and then move on, but you really haven't tackled it. And what I think I've to the conclusion is that you kind of have to do both things at once. You have to do the hearts and minds work while you're also doing some of the more intentional, strategic, you know, whether that's like policy moves or pedagogical moves within your classroom or, yeah, exactly, or a curriculum. But when you do either of those without the other, I've often found that there's something missing, right? We can implement a whole new curriculum, no problem. That's culturally responsive, that, you know, is based off of Dr. Goli Muhammad's Hill model and it's so dope. But if we don't have like teachers who have done some like personal reflection and hearts and minds work, it's probably going to fall flat, you know, in some ways, or it won't be as robust and fulfilling. So I think you kind of need to do both hearts and minds stuff. When we look at those three areas, one way to kind of get folks to start to do some action work on it, right? Because it's one thing to know what your dispro numbers are. And it's one thing to know that we need to do some workshops, you know, around arts and mind stuff. It's another thing to actually enact it within your district and know how to enact it or like where to even start because it can feel very overwhelming, I'm sure. And I've seen it feel very overwhelming for folks. I have typically leaned on improvement science as a vehicle and a tool towards addressing 
the way DISPRO shows up within districts and, and improvement science comes out of like the medical field. It was made popular in education by a whole host of folks, but I think Tony Brake and Luis Gomez and Dr. LeMay, who are really sort of, uh, wrote a book called Learning to Improve. And they basically laid out like a process and a plan on how to address particular problems of practice. So I use that as a tool to one, do some, you know, data analysis. So we gather all that qualitative data, all that quantitative data. I would then kind of put that into some sort of like system analysis, whether that's like a, a fishbone diagram or something like that, where, you know, we can really sort of map out and see the entire system, see what's influencing what with, within it that contributes to disproportionality that's living there. And then once we sort of have isolated some particular areas, because what you're going to find when you do that is that there are areas that we can't influence because of either our sphere of influence or because it just, you know, it's just out of our control or whatever it is. There's going to be areas that we have no say in. But you'll also find that there are particular points that you can directly influence and probably pretty quickly. While you're doing some of that hearts and minds work, you can also begin to make some, maybe that's like a, like a policy change. You can put in some speed bumps along the way that will influence and change the outcome for the uh, disproportionality. I use a PDSA model, which is a plan, do, study, act model. I use that because it provides like short bursts of you know, input into a system where you can say, all right, well, I'm going to try this thing out for a few weeks, see if it works. And if it doesn't work, then you know, we'll try something else. So that's typically how I'll do it. I'll say this last thing about improvement science, any sort of improvement work that happens within a district or a school or a classroom, there's a risk when you do improvement work, you know, school, quote unquote, school improvement work of doing something to a school district, as opposed to doing something with them. And when you do something to them, you're really perpetuating the systemic whiteness that probably caused that disproportion in the first place. So if you're not very intentional about how you are doing improvement work, particularly to show up in ways that are, you know, don't continue to perpetuate whatever oppressive systems live there to begin with, then there's a good chance that you'll just kind of continue it and not make much of an impact. Powerful, powerful, powerful. One thing I, I'm thinking about, and as you were talking, is like, so what's the relationship between like an equity audit or an equity-based needs assessment and disproportionality work? So is does one automatically assume the other, you know, the superintendent says, hey, we just hired a consultant to do an equity audit. So we also did our disproportionality work. Is that true? Are they one and the same or do they differ? I think that they're different, but related. And I think both, uh, so I believe it's Dr. Terrence Green, who I heard him speak. Yeah, I got to give a shout out to Terrence. He, he was one of my friends. We studied together at UW-Madison in our oh, program. So we, Terrence and I go back. <laughs> oh, that's so dope. So he don't know me at all. He's a friend <laughs> of my head. <laughs> and, uh, I've always thought his work is just super dope. Um, Absolutely. So anyway, I heard him speak once and he actually said that the uh, fire alarm analogy, and I think both operate in that way. I think equity arts, which he's on the forefront of. Sure. And dispro work can function like a smoke alarm where you're like, all right, well, we know something's going on here. Now, what do we do? I think equity audits can give you some additional insight into why there may be existent disproportionality within a district. You may start to do it 
I, I think it's similar to that qualitative data gathering piece where you're like, all right, I'm trying to get all this information so I can better understand it. Still, you have to do something with it. You know, they're like, a, okay, we have done this work and now we have to do something. I think that's the piece of like, all right, now that we know we have this, bro, we've done an equity audit. We understand that there's some real deficiencies within our own system and that we're causing harm, continual harm, right? Every day that we show up to work, what are we going to do? And I think that's the piece of like, all right, we need to come up with a real plan around how we do this that doesn't continue to perpetuate it. So an equity audit may provide very strong and powerful and insightful data to get the conversation started, to help us to understand Mm -hmm. the problems, the issues, the context, the why, well, maybe not necessarily the why's, but the big picture. But doing the disproportionality work allows us to go deeper and to have deeper level conversations. Yeah. I think that they complement each other. They, They go hand in hand. They work really well together. And I think typically what you're going to find is that at the end of that audit and at the end of this bro analysis and your root cause analysis, you'll find that, that the problem is not easily solvable. It's a deeper thing and it's layered. And when you solve one, there's probably going to be more under that, that you want to continue to unearth and uncover as you go through. I mean, that's a process of improvement. It's, it is an, a wholly iterative yeah. you know, process where there's not much of like a conclusion. Like you might get to a plateau where you're like, all right, this is good. You know, we've, we've done some good work here, but it doesn't end. You know, one of the principles of Courageous Conversations, which is Glenn Singleton's work, is to accept and expect non-closure, which for me as a white man was, was is, continues to be the hardest one to deal with. I just want things to be kind of tied up nicely. Like, all right, we've handled this, but that's not the way this works at all. It is a fully iterative process that kind of continues on. Um, yeah, because we're trying to identify and undo policies and systems that took years to make and years to develop right. and that are complex, comprehensive, and nuanced in nature. Yeah, that's right. You know, one of my academic heroes, Dr. Sonia Douglas, her dissertation alone was just super dope. And her early work, and she continued to do great work, but she focused on the way that integration after, you know, post-Brown versus Board of Ed was harmful in a lot of ways, which, you know, to me, as a white, you know, boy growing up thinking like, you know, or being conditioned to think like, oh, the civil rights movement like handled and, you know, all of racism and Brown versus Board of Ed handled all of racism and like integration was a great thing of, you know, schools was a great thing. Her work really demonstrates that there were some, some real pitfalls and real issues with it. Saying, okay, if we just do this one thing, it's going to fix all the other issues. And that's just not the case. That's just not it. It's not how this works. Like you said, it's so deeply ingrained in, in our culture and history and who we are and our identity as, as a nation that it's not going to be solved with like yeah. one small fix. And that's true for schools. Yeah, yeah. And then even to bring Terrence up again, a lot of his work and scholarship also looks at the politics of resegregation. And mm-hmm. yeah, how Brown on one hand said one thing, but then the implications of Brown was another conversation. Yeah, that's, that's right. a whole other conversation too, though. That's a whole other podcast too. We got a few yep. lined up. Yep. yep, 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 yep. So let's talk about, you know, okay, Chris, this has been great so far. I mean, this has been a very informative conversation. So let's think about if a school leader has, you know, they've conducted an equity audit, they've done some disproportionality work. 
they're seeing some issues, they've done a root cause analysis, you know, how might they move forward? You know, I mean, what can they do? What solutions or strategies can be in place to help to potentially resolve some of these disproportionalities? What do they do? Well, I'll say that it's not going to be solved through a workshop or, you know, like a one-off PD, or it's not going to be solved by creating an equity team for your district or for your school. Those are not the answers. Those are all okay steps. That's not going to solve it. I think doing a system analysis and really trying to understand the entire system through, you know, whether it's an improvement science process or some other process, really trying to identify which particular area you think you can identify or you can impact first is probably the way to go. You're not going to be able to solve it all in one big move. There's no like one chessboard move that you can do that's going to take out this issue. It's going to be a number of them. You have to decide where you're going to start first. I would suggest starting relatively small, trying it out in an isolated area or in a particular place. Maybe that system analysis identifies that, you know, this was true for one school I worked at. They had a particular exchange between class periods where when you, you know, sort of dug deeper and you talk to the students, I think it was between third and fourth period where most of these issues started before they had an elevated relative risk ratio for suspensions of Black male students. So looking at that particular area, they were able to say, okay, let's start there. Let's make some key changes to how we do things within that part of the day. And they just tried it out and they said, all right, well, we're going to try out this intervention over the next you know, three to four weeks and see what happens. And then we can either scale it up and make some larger changes based on if that works, or we can say, you know what, that's not it. We got to try something else. And I think that's okay too. Like those are all learning experiences. I know as educators, we're supposed to have the answer. And we're supposed to be able to fix it right away and say, you know, like no one wants to come in and say, I don't know, and which is a condition of whiteness too, right? But in this, there is no like right or wrong binary. There's a, we got to feel it out and see if this impacts us, you know, as a district. Like I said before, what works for some other district more nationally might not work for you because that's not you. So I think that's the case. So anyway, I think that's what leaders should do is start to really be committed to this. You have to make that commitment. You probably have to get some folks on board, especially in today's political climate. You're going to deal with people who are questioning why you're doing stuff. I would, through a system analysis, I don't mean to say those are easy steps because those are really difficult. Sure. But through a system analysis, then you can identify one to two small change ideas that you think will have the greatest amount of impact in the shortest amount of time. And then you can, depending on how those go, you can begin to scale them up and make some larger changes. And yeah, in Dr. Eddie's book, he he mentions the word intervention as, yep. you know, as a strategy or as a way of, of potentially resolving some of the disproportionalities. Yeah. And, you know, it's not like a lot of times what I'll see districts do is say, OK, we have a elevated relative risk ratio for students being referred for special education. And then they'll say, OK, we'll bring in this entirely big MTSS process and that's going to fix everything. This like humongous, you know, bloated new process for district to use. The MTSS doesn't have some really strong approaches, but there are small things within that that you can begin to try. Instead of just revamping your entire process, let's make some small changes here. Because what I've noticed is that when districts try to just get rid of whatever they've done in the past entirely and implement a brand new thing entirely, there's resistance. You know, the Heifetz and Linsky work, the you know, leadership on the, on the line stuff is people will be resistant because they fear loss within that process. Not necessarily 
resistance to that change, but they're resistant to that loss. So typically, or often, it's better to sort of take what you're currently doing, make some small tweaks, and eventually that'll blossom into a larger change. Now, it's something that I struggle with on a daily basis because one of the people I like to learn about the most United States history is John Brown. I think he's very interesting. And, you know, his was sort of an approach that was like, well, we're going to burn it all down and <laughs> see what happens. I have often wanted to take that approach with school improvement. Like, well, we need to just, just get rid of all this because every day our babies are coming to school. They're being harmed by these systems. So the urgency is now. Just typically, I haven't seen those those approaches work. I think that, which is why I lean on PDSA cycles because those are quick and there's a real urgency baked into them. So we have to make this change very quickly. We have to make it now. We have to see if it works. And if it doesn't work, we're not you know, married to it for the rest of the year or for two years down the line. We're able to pivot with some you know, agility to try something else to make sure. sure that our students are receiving what they need. Sure, sure. So you're saying that in terms of solutions or strategies for school leaders to not just think about specific intervention policies or intervention practices, but to also move and act with a sense of urgency to not tarry, as they, <laughs> as they would say in church. But yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. There can't be much idleness in this, mm. right? They can't be like, oh, all right, well, well, let's just, you know, get an equity team and we'll do a book study and, mm. you know, see where it goes. You know, I'm not against book studies or reading books. You know, I think you have to, particularly, you know, again, keeping it personal, local, and media. As a white male, it's on me to have to read and understand and learn as much as I can. But that being said, there's a real urgency because students are faced with oppressive practices in schools on a daily basis. Every and day. until you change those, they're going to continue to face those and be harmed. And they can't wait for you to figure it out because by the time you figure it out, they're going to graduate. Right. You know, they'll be, they'll be gone right. and no longer be impacted by it. So. You have to make those changes strategically in a focused way so that you can really have some immediate impact. Sure, sure. So as we kind of come to a close here with this, Chris, if there are school board presidents, superintendents, um, you know, district leaders who are interested in being serious about disproportionality work, what might be some resources that you could point them to? You know, I know we mentioned Dr. Eddie's work and his solving disproportionality and achieving equity book. But are there any other books or scholars or podcasts that you can kind of highlight to help people in this journey? Yeah, there's a ton of books. And I'm sure I could just rattle them all off. But yeah, obviously, I would start with Dr. Ferguson's book, Solving Disproportionality. You know, that's sort of, sort of the one that I'm never without <laughs> in this work. You know, Glenn Singleton's work, I know I mentioned him, but his book, Frazier's Conversations, provides a good framework for engaging in these conversations that can be difficult sometimes, that can be hard. You know, I think that's sort of the start, the hearts and minds work. And typically I found that if having a framework and having a protocol for potentially difficult conversations can be a very helpful approach. And then there's just a host of, of other texts around equity. And I think Dolly Chu's book, The Person You're Meant to Be, is a good way to get started with a group of folks who may not be interested in this work. Say the name of that book again. We're trying to give y'all yeah, some resources Dali, here. Dolly Chu, yeah. <laughs> okay. And then what's the name uh, of the book, though? So her name is spelled B-H-U-G-H. And the name of the book is The Person You Mean to Be. Oh, I see. That's a great, you know, jump into it. I think Race Talk by Dr. Sue is a great uh, oh, way yeah. to sort of jump into this. Yep. Yeah. Dr. Daryl um, Sue, yep. That's right, yep. And then there's just a, 
plethora of other ones that, you know, you can go into them with. I mentioned leadership on the line. I think that's a useful one for leaders who are going into this. Sure. And one thing that I didn't mention, but it's probably worth noting quickly that when you're doing sort of school improvement work, particularly around race, I think it requires a different leadership stance, a, a different ability to sort of frame the data that you're looking at and the way that disproportionality of living within your school or your district. So Keegan and Leahy have a book called An Everyone Culture, which is about deliberately developmental organizations. That's a great way to begin to think about different leadership stances and how you're processing through some of this data. I know I mentioned Dr. Douglas's book. I mentioned her work earlier, but her book is Learning in a Burning House. I mean, she has a number of books, but that was the one that really looked at the impacts of the Brown decision. Her name is Dr. Douglas Horsford. You know, not anymore. She is now just Douglas. Oh, I see. I see. I see. Respect. Yeah, that's why I got keep messing up. I yeah. see. So I it's see. Just okay. <laughs> okay. I get it. I get it. Yep. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. Wow. Powerful conversation here, Chris. This has been great. What might be a final thought that you would have to our listeners to kind of sum up this conversation and moving forward? Sure. This is crucial work. And I think in any attempt to improve a school district, I think it starts here. I think understanding where disproportionality is manifested within your district or the schools within your district is a crucial part of your work as a leader. I guess I'll end with sort of where I started off with earlier that if we're not showing up to disrupt and interrupt the way that education can be oppressive in different ways, then we're also being entirely complicit in it and causing harm to students. So I think that's a decision that we have to make. And I guess I'm saying that as a white male, that's a decision that I have had to make on a continual basis. So I guess that would be my urge to my fellow white colleagues uh, Mm. in this this work. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Chris, thank you so much. Thank you for you, right? Thank you for your mindset. Thank you for the work that you've done. Thank you for sharing your experiences and your insight. And thank you for your time today. I appreciate you being here. Well, thank you. It was an honor to get to talk to you through this. And I always appreciate talking to you. So thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Chris, if people want to get in contact with you, right, they, they may have been inspired from listening to you and they, they may wish to have a conversation with you. How can folks get in touch with you if they wish to do so? Sure. They could email me at krischris.dphillips, D-E-F-I-L-I-P-P-I-S, N-Y-U dot E-D-U. I mean, I think I'm on Twitter, at DePhillips. I don't know how I got that one early on in the game, I guess. Uh, <laughs> and I'm on LinkedIn, too. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I'll definitely provide your contact information in the show notes so that people can contact you if they're interested. So thank you. Thank you, Chris, for being on this podcast today. Excellent. Thank you. All right. Well, listen, I thank you for taking the time to listen to this show. And like I said before, hopefully you had the opportunity to take out some pen and paper to take notes because we gave you a whole mini lecture right here today, a mini seminar sort of on an introduction to disproportionality, but then also providing you with some insight around some resources and what strategies may even look like to move forward. So thank you for listening to this podcast. Continue. I ask that you continue to support the podcast and share this podcast episode with your peers and colleagues who are interested in this work.
So thank you again for being here on the Equity Experience Podcast. Until next time, take care of yourselves, love on yourself, love on your family, love on your community. Be well and be blessed.